coming up on this episode of East Screen West Screen. We talk a bit of Eric Kwok. Uh, Tommy Now takes on Chinese video streaming sites. Train to Busan shatters multiple box office records across Asia. Of course, the Busan Film Festival lineup. And we talk about 10 years finally coming on DVD. Finally, we will talk about the new film, Shin Godzilla. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox. And coming to you from his news desk in a conference room in the National Diet of Japan is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. Hi, hi, hi. Across the Pacific now. Yes. So this is, uh, if you haven't been uh, paying attention, uh, I've made the move across the Pacific Pond. And I'm now uh, recording from a very small room my uh, parents place right now in uh south florida i'd say sunny south florida but it actually looks like rain today so rainy south florida but uh you know you're probably not going to notice a difference hopefully at least in terms of the audio tone and the content we are still here we are still recording and uh at least for the next this episode and the next episode we've got a couple local films that i can comment on um so yes we're going to be talking about godzilla today and of course we've got uh, lots of other stuff going on kind of a big time for hong kong though because we've just passed the election right uh, elections going on lots of election buzz in the air you went out and voted didn't you mr ma i did i went out and voted i made my voice heard and um, the two candidates I voted for both got into the uh, Legislative Council, so I'm very happy about that. Excellent. So as they say, you know, a single grain of rice can st- tip the scale, as it were. You you might have been that single grain of rice, right? Well, especially this election. I mean, you see a lot of, because there are a lot of strategic voting going on, a lot of the, the uh, pan-democrat side talking about strategic voting, and and I kind of bought into that sort of strategic voting. It turned out that my candidate won one beat over the other pan-democrat candidates by a pretty vast majority. I mean, all these safe candidates sort of were in danger, and they were winning by a very small margin. So it really was kind of, kind of that um, uh, your vote really did make a difference this time. Mm. Yeah, well, very good, and congratulations, congratulations to all the candidates who uh, went out there, who campaigned hard, and who won, and hopefully will make some positive change going forward for Hong Kong, for what that's worth. But we are not here to talk politics. We are here to talk about movies and movie news. So let me throw the talking stick back over to Kevin at his news desk with this week's news. Well, and before we start going to the news this week, I, I mean, I, I just went. So this week I finally watched the Aaron Qual concert. It was my first time seeing an Aaron Qual concert. And dude it was freaking awesome i have to say like i had to like cut the news section just to talk about aaron clock it was a freaking amazing show and you 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 see much concerts here in hong kong paul 
I've seen a couple. Um, first concert I saw was Miriam Young. I've seen Eason, and I saw I've seen a couple indie concerts. Um, you know, people like Pancakes and Ketchup and um, um, uh, Anthony Wong, Wong Yao Ming, um, stuff like that, um, in in different festivals and things. But I mean, truly the in terms of like the big sort of canto pop concert, really Miriam's was the only one that I would say qualifies for that. Well, um, you, you actually watched Eason when tickets were still buyable. That's amazing. I mean, because, you know, it's impossible to buy Eason concert tickets. Yeah, yeah. No, this was right, this yeah. was this was back, you know, years back when both Miriam and Eason were still semi popular. I would say they were still rising um, in terms of their popularity as musicians and as, you know, film actors. Um, and of course, they ballooned out much larger later. My big disappointment was that um, there was an Anita Moy concert uh, right before she passed away that I did not go to because I had heard, you know, she was recovering. And I thought, okay, you know, I'd seen her twice in the States in the 90s. And I thought, well, um, you know, I'll go to the next one. And I made the incorrect assumption that there would be a next one. And unfortunately, there won't be. So. Um, my wife and I do have plans at some point in the future to come back and see Andy Lau um, with a concert. So hopefully that will be on the future agenda. Yes, I, I am proud to say that with Aaron, I have now seen all four Heavenly Kings in concert, which is important for any any Kendall pop fan you know, from my generation in the 80s, right? I've seen the first one I saw was Andy Lau. It was about 10, 15 years ago, I think. Then I saw Jackie in 2007 when I first moved back to Hong Kong. I saw Leon this year, earlier in the summer. And now I've seen Aaron and I've completed the Heavenly Kings list. Well, you're very very congratulated, around. sir. I, don't, I think I could, you know, I could very easily do three of the four. I'm not sure I could make it through a Leon concert. That's just my no. own personal taste. <laughs> no, but the thing about Leon concert is that they're notoriously short. The mm. one I watched is only an hour and a half, so you wouldn't have to suffer through a lot of much of Leon, fortunately. Mm. But the, the, the thing is, I think out of all four of them, the one that's most worth watching live, I think it's Aaron. Because the thing is, okay, okay, Jackie is, is great for singing. He's known for singing. Um, uh, Andy is a sort of a, you know, Flat entertainer is a great entertainer, right? Um, and Leon is, I don't know what the hell Leon's good for, but you know, he's what a heavenly king, whatever. But the thing is, Aaron is a dancer, he is the physic, the most physical performer of all four heavenly kings, and it totally shows. I mean, the man started the show at 832, 833 or so, and he just went on and on and on till 1145. You know, in Hong Kong, usually there's a bit of um, a stop in the tourist the end for the last hour for the end sort of so-called encore section right no encore for Aaron no encore that means no encore break the man just went on for three and a half three hours and 15 minutes it was mm. freaking amazing who was his guest he didn't have a guest he oh, just okay. did it on his own mm. he just went and did it on his own and and the thing about Aaron is that he you know he's actually quite well known for having this 360 degree rotating stage at his last concert or two concerts ago yeah so you know that the man like he knows how to spend money on really elaborate sets. And this one, he had um, he had a sort of a, it's almost like a um, one of those bingo panel stage. So each part, so yeah, it looks like the photo you parts. put up looked like kind of a cube. Yeah, so he got these. So the stage itself is sort of split into these six cubes, I think, six cubes and two triangles on the, on the ends, and then they lift up to tort sort of even even up to the monitor, just under the monitors. And and they would sort of go up and down, and they also rotate um, sideways, 180 degrees. 
so 360 degrees sideways, not up and upside down, but they, they would rotate, they turn 360 degrees. So they had this thing where it's like they, they split into train tra- little train cars, and Aaron's dancing on top of it, and then he goes into it, and then he comes back out, and there are freaking explosions. And then there's one, um, I mentioned this on Twitter, but you know there's a, this ad from Air France where you see these women who, who swing in the middle of the air, in, in, in midair? Aaron did that, you know, live. Uh, like like fifteen feet above ground. Like this man knows how. To, let me forget it. Let's face it. I mean, Aaron's not a great singer, you know. For the whole the whole night, um, the mic is always too close, and whenever he sings ballads, you hear this pop, 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 pop sound, and it's really bad. Like we, it has worse audio than this podcast. All right, but, <laughs> that's like, terrible. <laughs> it has worse worse audio than this podcast. And but but dude, I just want to swear. Like I'm going to swear this now. That man can perform. And and it was an amazing show and and I know if you're thinking about coming back for Andy Lau, I would suggest you come back for Aaron instead because that man knows how to put on a show and he definitely knows he he even took off his shirt. I mean that's pretty much like that's that that's it. Like yeah, worth the, worth the price of the price of admission right there. So exactly, drop drop um, mic right there. And it's so like, this is yeah. a this is something I I'm you know with most of the big name star concerts, there's usually a DVD blue that comes out within say six months so this is one to pick up then this is what i think actually the show i watched because there was a guy who kept walk, running around the stage with steady cam so i think mine was a show that was being recorded and yeah i i think it's not as good if you're not watching it like live but i think there's definitely one worth checking out there were this couple behind me that that was about to leave and the woman the middle-aged woman next to me literally this before the they had a call Cold War themed section. There was a Cold War themed section, um, and the wave, the the whole swinging thing at the end. The woman stopped them and said, "You guys are not leaving, are you? Like the best part is coming." Like she even showed them pictures because she actually seen the show before. It was like her second time watching the show, and she's like, this, "You guys are missing this." And they sat right down and watched the rest of the show. It was really that great. Hmm. Yeah, it's too bad they didn't bring out uh, Tony Lung Kafai as the uh, guest. <laughs> I, I, I think his knee was go weak because you know, talk about the, the the lifting stage, right? I mean, if you look at it, that thing is not stable. I mean, it's stable; it looks stable enough. But the thing is, that thing is like shaking because there are like ten dancers on that thing, right? Mm. And they're not like they're not like 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 staying in one place. They're like jumping left and back, left and right. So so that 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 that, that stage was shaking. Like I would piss my pants if i was in that off on that stage um so yeah no definitely i mean aaron we've we've made fun of him before and um david showed a clip from divergence as in like this is his, his acting highlight whatever his career this is 25 years a singer so so he's talking about his his career and and his you know looking back and stuff like that so the clips from his films um and we make fun of him a lot for his acting or whatever and and i could i say he's not a great singer but that was a world. I, I paid five hundred and eighty Hong Kong dollar, and I had a pretty good seat. You saw my Facebook photo. I had a pretty good seat, and that was a world class, free an hour and fifteen minute concert. Yeah. Now, were you so, guys at the Hong Kong Auditorium? Or were you over in Macau? That was the Hong Kong Coliseum. So okay. he 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 performed at the Asia World Expo, just next to the airport, and it is a bigger venue. He performed there for his last two concerts. So this is his return back to Hong Kong or the Hong Kong Coliseum. It's like the first time in like eight years or something like that. So it's a big deal for him. It's eighth eighth uh, Hong um, Hong Kong Coliseum concert, I think. All right. So that man's been around twenty five years, and he's still he's like fifty, right? And he he he's oh, he still don't look he doesn't look fifty. When that shirt comes off, that's not the body of a fifty year old. He's pumping some uh, vampire blood or something. 
<laughs> well, it's also that's also why I can still date like twenty year olds. So yeah, you know, indeed. Yeah. All right, uh, moving on from the awesomeness of Aaron, uh, and do get a chance to catch him on DVD if you don't get out to the concert. Uh, you got some news over in Taiwan, right, from Simon Lam? Yeah, uh, kind of in Taiwan. Well, Simon Lam, uh, the Altair, the Taiwan-based Altair. Uh, we kind of know him. He directed, you know, Viva Moore, and, and he's very famous. Um, not many of us have seen his films, but we all know who he is, right? Um, the thing is, he does have a following in China, but the thing is, those that following came because those people were downloading his films. Now, Simon Nunn was finally tired of it, and he went on his Weibo account and started um, calling out video streaming sites, telling them, you guys are showing my films illegally. You guys should not. So there was this whole debate about, you know, whether... Whether, um, because you have these Chinese fans who are going like, but it wasn't for these sites, it wasn't for us watching your movies. Like, you would have a following in China. And his argument is very simple. He says, if I don't, as an artist, if I cannot sustain my life, if I cannot get paid, what's the point of a fan? What's the point of fans? So he went after the Chinese video streaming sites. He started sending out notices demanding that they, they remove his films and he he has had successes actually at least two websites i can see has already apologized um and vowed to remove the films that's include that includes 10 cent video and there's a very another famous site that starts with b i don't want to say the name in case you guys want to go look for films there but that website not only posted a statement um apologizing uh and they removed his films they also vow they also worked it out they negotiated timing down timing down named two of his favorite books and asked the websites to buy 500 copies of each and give it away to the users of the website for free because he's worried about the um the and i quote the uh, nurturing or the um the environment that the youths are growing up in or their their, their, their morals their ethics so he's, he had the website buy two of those books and give them away for free um which i think is a huge huge hit huge victory i think um it is true that these filmmakers um, you know, it's great that he fans, and it's great that the people watching the films. But it is true that even as artists, even people who hate art, they they, they do not do things for free. I think we talked about this last last week uh, when we talked about um, Weeds on Fire. Um, I'm sorry, like even just because we work in the arts doesn't mean we have a right to do things for free, or that we don't have a right to make a living from from our work, from creative work. Um, and I think that Tommy now really, I'm really glad that he stuck to his guns, and I'm glad that he fought the sites. Um, Paul, what do you think about this issue? You think Tommy now is right? Do you think that that for him it's more important to follow in China, or is it more important for him to sort of defend his his you know right to make money? Well, it's his work. I think he has a right to you know lay claim to it, particularly if these are commercial sites, you know that you like you mentioned, and they're earning some kind of revenue from that you know it's one thing if you've got people who don't have access to something and you know they are using something like a BitTorrent or a pirate bay or those kinds of services not that i'm advocating for those services but i understand when you don't have access and you want to have access to something and there's no legitimate means of doing so that you know sometimes you'll go those routes so I have less of a problem with that, but when you have companies, big companies, like the ones you mentioned that are actually making bank and putting this stuff up and they're not supposed to be, then I definitely have a problem with it. So um, good on him for coming after them. So what do you think? Do you think that 
um, that the fans are right. Like, if it wasn't for these sites, we wouldn't be able to watch your films. But the thing, yeah. So, what do you think about that? I yeah, mean, especially I, I China, mean, right? I, it's again, it's you know, I I don't necessarily fully agree with that argument because you know, back in the seventies during the Cultural Revolution, I think we mentioned this before. You know, T- Teresa Tang's albums were banned, but people still listen to her in China, and so. I think that where there's a will, there's a way. What where I have a problem is when you have big corporations making money off of that, you know, rather than just people, you know, making copies of CDs and cassettes and sharing them with friends, basically. Um, so, you know, for me, there's it's it's a it's a massive gray area, and I can see both sides of the argument, and I tend to be more forgiving of the individual who wants to be exposed to these kinds of things. Um, but I'm far less forgiving of the companies that are trying to capitalize on that. Well, um, I'll keep following uh, Mr. Tsai's uh, uh, crusade uh, to try and you know get his rights, um, and I'll keep us updated. All right. Very good, very good. Uh, next bit of news, the zombie-esque apocalypse that's become a movie ap- apocalypse, uh, at least financially. Train to Busan, right? Yeah, train. Have you have you finally get this? Get I did it? not. I had hoped to get out and see it before we left, and it just uh, time crunch came upon us, and I could not get out to see it. I'd also planned okay, to you- hope to see Weeds on Fire too, but screenings seemed to disappear uh, the last couple of days. Well, good thing about Train to Busan is that you will definitely get to see it on iTunes pretty soon. I think, at least in, in two months or so, I think. So that's a good thing. Uh, weeds on Fire. Well, well, we'll work out Weeds on Fire later, but. Uh, um, no, Train to Busan has absolutely been phenomenal um, uh, in Hong Kong. As I predicted last week, I said that it has a very good chance of shattering uh, My Sassy Girl's uh, record for the highest grossing Korean film uh, in Hong Kong. Um, it was already it already shattered record in Singapore way before that. And I was right. The, it beat the record in three days. By the Saturday, on the third day it opened. And that's include, of course, three, four weeks of preview screenings. Um, but Within three days plus four weekends of, of pre screenings, the film shattered the My Sassy Girl record, and it has now made forty million Hong Kong dollars. All right, this 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 beats all Hong Kong films this year. No Hong Kong film has grossed that much money. I think. Oh no, sorry, Cold War Two. The only it's, it's only about the only film that's grossed more. The only local film, Asian film, that has grossed more than Train to Busan in Hong Kong this year is, is Cold War Two, and that is the highest grossing film. Chinese film of all time in Hong Kong. Um, it is making like Hollywood bank here. Um, and that's pretty amazing. Of course, it also set a record for the highest um, single day gross for 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 uh, Korean film in Hong Kong. It will probably beat World War Z, which is a Hollywood film, a Hollywood zombie film, a Brad Pitt film. Uh, it probably beat that film's gross as well. And it just opened this past week in Taiwan. And in just 30 hours... It beat the record, uh, shattered the record that was set by a tale of two sisters. It's now, against the highest grossing uh, Korean film ever in Taiwan. Uh, it was number one in box office, of course. It was, again, making Hollywood bank in Taiwan. So, gosh, this, this, train, this zombie train fever um, uh, is sort of setting across Asia. It's a great news for, for the Korean film industry, obviously, for them. I think um, they had a bit of a lull. Um, their films weren't really connecting with audiences outside of Korea, and there's a huge problem with that. But with Train to Busan, it sort of really resets the game. Um, it's reset the game, and and it sort of brought on this possibly new new hope for Korean films uh, in Asia. Um, and 
what I'm afraid of is that we'll probably see about 20 zombie train knockoff movies in the next two years or so. Yeah, so we don't it, need that. Yeah, but, you know, it's hard. Unless, it, unless it's Samuel L. Jackson saying something like, I'm sick and tired of these MF and zombies on this MF and train, right? God, I hope. Yeah, but that's only one film. And next thing you know, it would be Wong Jing making, um, like, you know, pervert train with zombies or something. Bio, bio train, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bio train or, or or mixing midnight after with train to Busan, so it's like the mini bus to mini bus to Taipo again. <laughs> so it'd be zombie. I don't know. I'm not watching. I can't come up with shitty ideas. So sorry. Jeez, uh, we just read explicit again. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to remember to edit that out. Apologies if I don't. <laughs> Let um, me record. I will record a explicit language warning at the beginning of the podcast. Yeah, yeah. but. But yeah, so that's it. A Train to Busan, it, it's a deserving film. It's it deserving of its success. It's a great idea. It's a great concept. It's a great execution. And and uh, I'm glad that Korean films sort of get this new blood because I think Korean films sort of get the bad deal. You know, K-pop sort of because it's such a niche with teeny boppers that Korean films also sort of affected by this stereotype against um, against you know Korean tv dramas and they think that it's all melodrama or it's all whatever and and it's it's kind of cool that 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 korean films are um subverting subverting uh, expectations very good very good well speaking of subverting expectations uh, a little bit of news about the film that could uh, 10 years that's right 10 years uh, i've got a few questions about this had have had a few questions about this um, over on the Love HK Film Facebook group. Um, when is Ten Years coming on DVD? When is it coming on DVD? Well, it's been a, it's been available for a good couple of months now uh, on iTunes Store and the Android Store here in Hong Kong for Rento. But now um, the uh, DVD release has finally been announced. It is coming uh, in October, mid October. I don't want to use a specific date because um, I'm not sure how solid that date is, but. Um, HMV here in Hong Kong has op- opened exclusive pre-orders for the next week and a half or so, and um, and uh, after that, I think then they'll op- they probably open general pre-order. I I am not sure of this. Of course, um, um, here um, here uh, in 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 Hong Kong, or you know, for for those listening to us overseas, I would always suggest you guys order from Yes Asia, but. Um, here in Hong Kong, you can buy it at, at HMV, the pre-order period, uh, at a discounted price. is up, up until September 14th. And the official um, pickup date for the stock is uh, October 14th. There comes with two editions. It comes with a regular edition, which um, comes with a bookmark or a set of bookmarks. And then there's a box set, which comes with a uh, pin, or I think, or 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 like a batch. And, um, and it seems like it also comes with an extra booklet. Um, it's so, not a little red booklet, is it? <laughs> no, no. I, I wonder what's in the book, but I'm not sure. It's probably making of book. Um, and if you're a collector, I think that's one you could you could think about. But um, has there been but, any? Uh, yeah. Has there been any discussion on or rumors about special features on the the DVD, the Blu-ray itself? Uh no, nothing like that. Just um, just as far as I know, it's just that set of um uh, bookmarks. Yeah, it'd be cool if there is a uh commentary or something but the book will include you know commentary uh, um critics commentary or uh, a lot of color photos um a, 
uh, writing from the from directors, but of course all in Chinese. What would be great but, uh, is if they had uh, if they had video of like all the people who came out speaking out against the film, <laughs> you know, the things they said about it and whatnot. That would be pretty uh, cool. As, a, as some of the special features, uh, they they probably won't do that though. Yeah, <laughs> that would be great. I mean, at least we could have the uh, ten years on a trailer. <laughs> yeah. Which exists, by the way, 10 years on Australia. That would be pretty cool. But anyway, yeah, so it's coming out mid-October, uh, finally. So um, keep... Ch- I, would, I would suggest you guys check out, start checking out those online retailers after the HMB pre- pre-sale period, which is um, September 14th. So I think after next week or so, you guys can can start looking out at uh, Yes Asia and other retail sites that I want to mention because of my loyalties. <laughs> and uh, and uh, see if we can pre-order it. All right, there you go. Final bit of news this week, uh, some news about Busan. Yeah, the Busan Film Festival finally announced its lineup. Very quick, just going over the opening film. is uh, a Korean film by a Korean-Chinese director named Zhang Lu, A Quiet Dream. Um, he's an art house guy. If you guys know it, then great. If you guys don't, don't worry about it. It's closing of an Iraqi film, which is very much following in tradition of the festival. They like to open with these sort of exotic uh, country, films from exotic countries. Um of course, they have a lineup of 301 films, so it's pointless to go over all of them. Of course, you got your big can titles. You have um, Shinkai Makoto's new film, uh, Your Name, which is a huge, huge in Japan moment. Um, you also got a few Hollywood films. Your La La Land that's going to be playing, which I may be flying to Busan for just to watch. Um, and uh, this, the news kind of for us um, is that there is only one quote-unquote Hong Kong film. There are a few... China Hong Kong co-productions. They're really shot in China. There's a um, uh, there's a film I think that's set in yeah. There are a few films set in China, but you know co-produced with Hong Kong companies. But it's all mainland Chinese film. But there is one Hong Kong film, and that is Johnny Toast Free. So it's kind of sad because this year has been has been very strong for independent Hong Kong films because you have the first feature initiative, which produced Weeds on Fire. Which also produced um, um, Mad World, which is uh, which stars. John Yu and Eric Zhang is premiering in Toronto. Um, uh, and you have King Jones, the, the Taste of Youth. You have uh, also King Jones, also his film under the First Film Initiative. Um, with Steffi, by the way, Paul, you think you should like this. Um, these films are ready to go. And the thing is, the, you know, Busan completely, you know, missed out on it. Um, in, in a program of 301 films. So it's a bit sad that uh, Hong Kong's missing this year. And this is the festival that closed with, um, what was that, 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 Anthony Wong, Cha Chan Tan film, the gangster. Oh, you remember? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Him and Charlie. Gangster Payday. Yeah, what? Gangster Payday. It, the festival closed with Gangster Payday, and one year opened with Cold War. So it's not like they ignore what's going on in Hong Kong cinema. It's just that they decide not to program the film. So that's too bad. Um, but it's still a really solid lineup if you don't care about Hong Kong cinema. And if you don't care about Hong Kong cinema, what the hell are you doing here? Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing here? What are we doing here? Yeah. Um, all right, so that's our news for this week. Thank you once again to Kevin. I think we'll take a short musical break, and we'll be back to talk about this week's film, Shin Godzilla, also known as Godzilla Resurgence. <laughs>
Welcome back. Our film this week, as mentioned, is Shin Godzilla, also known as Godzilla Resurgence, from director Hideki Anno. Um, I'm not going to go into the cast here because, for me, most of them were probably unknowns. So Kevin might make a couple mentions on some of the cast members. Lots of old Japanese men <laughs> in much of the film. Uh, one cast member did stick out for me, though, and that was uh, Makaki Ichikawa, who was also under uh, director Ano's direction in the 2004 live-action remake of Cutie Honey. So the story here, uh, if you're unfamiliar with Godzilla movies, and if you are, why are you even listening to this podcast? But in the off chance that you are, the story when a giant uh, fish-dog-like creature emerges from the ocean, the Japanese government springs into action to try and stop it. Now, this obviously doesn't sound like your typical Godzilla film, if you're a Godzilla fan like I am. That's because this is not your typical Godzilla fan uh, film. Um, and for fans, this film might be a little bit polarizing in some ways. So we'll get a little bit into this. Um, thoughts on this film? Oh, no, there goes Tokyo. Go, go, government bureaucracy. So, yeah, um, this is a satire film more than a straight-up Godzilla film. And so, kind of, if you're like me and you're looking for more of a WWF traditional sort of 90s to 2000s Godzilla Smackdown film where Godzilla fights other big monsters, or even the recent Hollywood remake, which I thought did a fairly good uh, homage to Godzilla films... That's not here. Um, this, for the most part, is a kind of reboot, as it were, but also a satirical reboot of the original Godzilla. It's not a sequel in any way, shape, or form. It is um, kind of a reimagining of the Godzilla story for the modern day. And, of course, there's a lot of allusions to things that have actually happened, um, such as Fukushima and other events, and really pointing the finger back to the way the Japanese government gets bogged down by its almost comical bureaucracy at times. So a lot of satire, a lot of allusions to recent disasters and government responses to those disasters. And as such, yes, it's kind of funny. Um, but is it a good Godzilla movie? I would say not so much. Not so much. Um, you've got genre. You've got commentary on genre, and then you've got parody, right? So you get films like a genre film like Halloween or Friday the 13th or A Nightmare on Elm Street. And then you get a, a, you know, a commentary on that, something like Scream, right? Which is really kind of picking apart some of those conventions. And then you get something like Scary Movie, which is really just, uh, you know, just trying to parody the whole idea of, of everything that's going on in the genre. And this film kind of falls in between those two areas of commentary and, and parody, I think. Um, we start off with the, the idea of the this monster just kind of basically coming from out of nowhere and showing up off the coast of Japan um, you don't see him at first. He's kind of submerged. People aren't sure what's going on. Um, it's the presence is starting to affect things. It's it causes damage to an underground tunnel, for example. And the government starts having meetings, right? Lots and lots of meetings to deal with the response. And there's a direct binary of what's happening here. You've got the old ministers and the prime minister 
who are very conservative in their approach. They're not really willing to listen to new ideas um, or radical ideas. They're really just trying to bureaucratize the whole thing and hopefully have it go away. And of course, when that doesn't happen, what starts to be apparent is that the young guys, especially one young and up-and-coming politician, uh, bureaucrat who you know, is trying to say, hey, this could be a biological thing. And, uh, you know, nobody believes him at first. And then because he turns out to be right, he gets a small task force, kind of the makings of what we would recognize as the, you know, Japan SDF only here. They're not using, um, you know, uh, flying, flying spaceships to attack Godzilla. They're not using the old traditional sort of radar uh, laser beam cannons that we've seen in old films. Um, primarily pretty much a practical modern <clears throat> military approach. Um, to dealing with the Godzilla problem. When Godzilla comes out of the water, he does not look like Godzilla. Um, the best I could describe him is he looks as kind of like a skinless mutant dogfish thing. And it's really freaky, um, creepy looking. He has these kind of dead fish eyes. He scoots along the ground, pushing himself forward. He has only hind legs. So he's, again, he's kind of like a lungfish in some ways who's coming onto land for the first time. And they use this to an interesting effect because when he does, it's basically like he is a tsunami, right? And he's pushing all this debris and stuff, uh, you know, up up in front of him as he makes his way through um, through land. And so obviously, again, it's a re referencing back to a lot of the images and things we saw coming out of um, uh, Fukushima and the tsunami. And I, I appreciated that for... A little bit, you know. Uh, then he goes through a period of mutations, um, and it, as he's doing this, I'm reflecting back, and because it's really, he's really disgusting looking. I mean, I was really taken <laughs> by the how gross the design actually was, and and in some ways kind of horrifying, especially when he kind of opens his maw and starts to make noises. And I was remembering back to the times when Godzilla was again geared more for the kids market you know especially when Gamera was gaining in popularity this is a movie that's going to freak the heck out of kids this is not something that I think kids are going to want to go and see um, and perhaps that's part of the satire and the parody too um, I know that the director is famous for the Evangelion series which unfortunately I haven't had a chance to to see but people that I know who have seen it say there are a lot of parallels between uh, things that are done in the Evangelions and things that are going on here, at least in terms of some of the some of the ways and, and things are portrayed and some of the timing and of, of certain events and things. Um, but I can't really comment too deeply on that because, again, I'm just sort of hearing that from people who, who've seen the Evangelion shows. So Godzilla himself, he, you know, kind of evolves in real time. Um, but the one thing that kind of stays constant is these dead fish eyes that he's got. And part of me wondered, too, is this part of the overall parody, going back to sort of the original Godzilla designs when he was just kind of a rubber suit and he didn't have blinking eyes. He wasn't as animatronic as we've come to know him in later films. He wasn't as CGI'd and sort of anthropomorphized as we've known him in the most recent films. So... You know, I, I, I was like wondering why that design choice? I mean, is it really making fun of 
this character of old? Or is it just saying, you know, that no, this this thing comes out of the sea, it's going to be fish-like, and it's going to have these sort of dead fish eyes? Because for me, the eyes have always been one of the points of expression for, you know, the creature. You go back to watch the early films, of course, they're dealing with different levels of special effects, so that it always didn't work. Later films brought out more personality and character because of animatronics or, or whatever. So, but he does go through these stages of evolutions. They mentioned four stages in the film, but really I only kind of saw three um, where he, you know, he gains arms, his spines grow, and ultimately he, you know, he starts to evoke his uh, radioactive breath and another radioactive ability that I won't spoil here. Um, and at a certain point, his jaw actually separates out like a predator, which I was not too keen on. Um, and if you see the actual design of, you know, sort of the final facial design of him, he's just kind of like hideous looking, you know, teeth are all over the place. And he really looks like more of a kaiju villain or opponent of a Godzilla or a Gamera than... Godzilla as we know him, right? And and again, this again might be part of the overall parody or the overall satire of the creature uh, himself, or it just might have been the way the designer wanted to uh, deal with the design. Uh, the other big issue, too, is not that much of him in the film. He's maybe in a quarter of the film in ter- to- terms of total screen time, and the rest is a lot of meetings, people meeting in different boardrooms, people meeting in different conference rooms, people discussing the quote-unquote Godzilla problem, right? Um, coming up with a name for him, thinking about a response. Uh, there is a bit of action towards the end when they finally get around to an actual response. Uh, it gets a little bit political because you get the United States involved. And that part I liked, I sort of liked sort of the, the political maneuverings and having to deal with this sort of issue as a somewhat real issue and how the United States might want to uh, pull a power play or be involved on some level. Um, So yes, you know, the power of bureaucracy compels you. Um, So look, I liked Cutie Honey. Uh, Cutie, the live action Cutie Honey was kind of a parody itself of the anime um, I really liked uh, Takeshi Miike's Yatterman, you know, here too, another sort of live-action parody satire of uh, a beloved anime series. Um, so I don't mind the satire, I don't mind the parody of genre, but here I just felt like it was really more, I mean, Godzilla was more of an afterthought. This could have been about, you know, any creature from the sea. It didn't have to be a Godzilla movie. It could have been, you know, um, about aliens from outer space. It could have been invaders from Mars. Because so much of it is based on the central idea of the bureaucracy and the response and, you know, the ineffectiveness and then ultimately the success of, you know, the the young Turks, as it were, who, uh, you know, have all the fresh ideas. So, for me, as a Godzilla movie, it didn't work. As a satire, it was entertaining. It was funny at times. And, you know, especially their solution for dealing with Godzilla, when you think about it, it's kind of it's kind of just dumb and humorous. But, again, it's satire, so you just kind of roll with it. Um, and that's my take on it. Again, I'm very much 
a tr sort of traditional Godzilla fan, especially, you know, when he's battling things like Ghidra and, you know, space monkeys from Planet X and, and things like this. Um, so I know that many of my friends liked this more, much better than I did. Uh, they appreciated the satire part of it. And I think one of those people is the very own Kevin Ma. So let me throw it over to Kevin and get his take on it. Oh man, you got it so awesome. It was brilliant. Okay, so the thing is, the first, the very, very first Godzilla film, okay? This and, the, so the commonality they share is that they were both created by Japan and their sort of anxiety towards nuclear technology, right? I mean, first film made in 1954, it was a response to anxiety after the atomic bomb. It was created by by you know nuclear waste right nuclear testing and this film this was cre also again same is a commonality it, it's a japan it's a japan japanese creation and it's created by 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 nuclear technology through nuclear waste um so essentially it's very simple it's think of godzilla is the fukushima power plant that's and that that is pretty much why it's so it is it is a very un it has to be Godzilla because Godzilla was also created back in the day due to this anxiety towards towards nuclear technology. So it it totally makes sense that it's a Godzilla film, and I I think it was. I mean, the thing is, I don't really I I, I haven't seen the original Godzilla. Obviously, I've mean, seen Godzilla films, but it feels like finally this one did it right. I mean, like the Hollywood one, it was the first I mean, Roland Emmerich. Let's not talk about the Roland Emmerich. Uh, which is a guilty pleasure of mine, but let's not even like talk about that film, right? The new, the new remake, the American remake, it's fine, but I could barely see the guy. So it was all—he fought a monster in the dark. So what the hell was there to see? Like it was fine, but this one—it feels like this is the Godzilla movie I've been waiting for. You know, it—it is—it is the um, the the bureaucracy stuff, the um, all the stuff about ineffectual government, and it is also uniquely Japan because they talk about it is the. I'm not sure if it's the only country in the world, but it is one of the very few countries in the world where the constitution um, essentially state that they cannot have their own military, right? So this film deals with that very much. It's about whether, whether Japan should militarize, should have a stronger military power, because in this film, they keep talking about all the bureaucrats about what they can't do, what they can't do under this. They can't do this. They can't do this. So when they're facing a threat, they're caught up in all this bureaucracy, right? all these red tape, all these rules and and meetings and hierarchy. And it, it, the way that this this young young um, bureaucrat comes up, he's sort of the maverick, right? And he's still in a suit and stuffed up, and and you know, you know, it, he's a maverick in a way that you wouldn't see in American film. You know, in American film, they'd be you know running into office and, and, and wiping crap off desk, right? And going like, like you know, and rebelling, right? But this guy, he's like, a, he, he still speaks in, you know, formal language. And and he's a maverick in a very Japanese way in that he he shows that the people above him are dumber than him. And that's, and then he, start, and then he starts, and then he's so, it's really special when he puts together a, a room and he says, everyone can speak freely here. And that's like really mavericky in terms of in, in Japanese terms, which I find really amusing. Um, I, I, of course, the, the 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 first half hour with all the with all the captions and all the sudden cuts and, and sort of still setting up the stage. That's all very fun and doesn't really hold up until the very end. But I think that 
the design of Godzilla, like you said, it really creeped me out. It really gave me the the, the creep, the heebie-jeebie, so to speak. The especially the first stage of the evolution, uh, really, really creepy. You can't even look at it more than a couple of seconds, um, and it later becomes Godzilla, right? Um, and and um, I, I think the design is pretty awesome. It was apparently directed by motion by motion capture. Uh, with actor uh, Nomura Manzai, who's a stage actor, doing uh, he's sort of doing the Andy Serkis thing. Uh, he performed the Godzilla moves uh, and the face and stuff like that. And and um, but yet it, it still looks like a dude in a rubber suit. They they intentionally made it look like a dude in a rubber suit. And the the way they uh, I don't want to do any spoilers, but they use such a, a uniquely Japanese way to defeat Godzilla in the end, or to fight Godzilla in the end. It's so uniquely Tokyo. If you like, if you lived in Tokyo, or you familiar with Tokyo? It is such a uniquely Tokyo way to defeat him or to fight him. Um, uh, that is really cool. Um, so for me, I I thought it was brilliant, dude. I thought it was really well made. Um, yes, it, it 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 actually the trailer did not look promising because I think Japan cannot do these really talky films really well, um, uh, especially when it comes to big budget and sci-fi blockbuster. But I I consider me so I'm not a fan of Evangelion, but but I think that Hideaki Anno, like many Evangelion film uh, Evangelion fans, I think Anno's a freaking genius. Um, just a really smart. Uh, don't watch it as a monster film. I think you watch it maybe as a satire, sure, but it's also very much a commentary, a serious commentary about the current state of um, Japanese politics, and at the same time also a commentary about how the the government handled the Free Eleven uh, disaster or sort of mishandled it. Um, and yeah, it's a really enlightening film, I think, and uh, it's definitely worth a watch for anyone who's who's interested in you know sort of. Understanding sort of a Japanese mentality is very much the disaster mentality, or, or you know the red tape and what's going on sort of in the government. I wouldn't, of course, it's not going to be like hundred percent. It's not like hundred percent accurate, right? But I think it does sort of reflect the mentality that's going on inside government, the hierarchy in these sort of big organizations. And I think that's uh, it's a it's a really surprise. I mean, I didn't, I expected a a, a, a middling Godzilla film, and I got a really great. Social uh, political satire, and uh, I liked it a lot. Yeah, it, it's interesting to think about this film, and because this is not a film that could be made in the United States, right? It just would not right. work in Hollywood. Um, it doesn't hit those kind of buttons. I think even as a even as like a parody or a satire, um, this is not a film that would ever be made in China because it so pokes fun at the government. Right. And, and actually yeah. some of some of the actual uh, if, if I remember correctly, like actually a couple of the moments of things that happen, like, you know, statements that are made at press conferences and then are redacted are actual things. They're they're actual references to things that actually happened with the government right during the, the 311 event. And so I think, you know, on that level, it's I, I can truly appreciate it. I think it, you know, again, it's very funny at times. Um, especially with, you know, just some of the, uh, there, there's a moment where they, they like cut the black and they say, oh, this, you know, uh, <laughs> redacted. This, 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 this section has been redacted, you know, it's just very intentional, um, moments of humor that are there. They're not sort of, you know, slap your side guffaw humor, but they're, if you're somebody who enjoys politics and, and the, the ways and that political machinations are 
done sort of behind and you wanted always wanted to see things behind the scenes i think this film does a very good job of that where i think it falls short is as a godzilla movie right it's just not what i think a traditional godzilla fan is going to be expecting or or um i don't think they're going to come out i mean they, they may come out like myself appreciating the satire and, and appreciating the statement but they'll be left wanting in terms of what they expect from a godzilla movie Man, I, I don't want the Japanese Godzilla to start fighting out of monsters. I don't know why, but um, but you may get your wish because I think the, the sequel has been greenlit and is kind of is coming in twenty nineteen. I think. Yes. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens at that time because um, I think as we mentioned before, we have uh, Skull Island on fast track approach, and then we should be getting the Hollywood version of the Godzilla and King Kong Smackdown somewhere around uh, 2020, uh, if I remember my timelines correctly. So, um, yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to, to see what happens uh, with uh, the Godzilla property. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Kongcast.com for more. you have been listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabbar of Snowser Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. Um, we did have a couple questions regarding a film we previously talked about, Line Walker, and I thought uh, I'd, uh, I'd bring a couple of these up. Um, so uh, Peter from uh, Edmonton, Canada wrote in again and he was talking about in Line Walker um, a couple things uh, he mentions. First, like Charmaine at a certain point has her wrist uh, hurt, um, and he doesn't remember that being established in the film. And he also points out a couple other points of establishment, such as how did the bad guys find Francis's safe house uh, for the shootout near the end? Um, I, yeah, I think these were plot points that they just kind of went more with. Uh, you know, ideas of convenience for, for moving the story ahead. Uh, he goes on to ask also about the the plot gimmicks as we talked about, especially the one that really bothered me, um, being sort of a tradition from the series, right? Two fake deaths, uh, two blanks used in guns. I have not seen the series. I do intend to try and go back and watch it because I've heard really good things about it. I've, 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 know, I've talked to a couple of people who have since gone and watched the movie after seeing the film and they said they really liked it and that as a TVB drama it actually stands out uh, in some ways um, so I'm kind of curious to go back and and uh, check it out at some point um, the other question he has which uh, I'll throw over to Kevin too how does Louis Koo survive Sarfed the gangsters never prosper censorship um, do you think there's a mainland cut showing him dropping dead or going to prison um i wouldn't be surprised uh there might be a voiceover there might be a uh, a shot of him getting arrested or there might be just an inner title whatever yeah. it is very odd that sort of news just sort of disappears right i mean yeah, yeah um, the, the and, film it, it just kind of drops um central i mean we never hear from charlene again 
or Charmaine again. We know uh, not really clear on what happens to Louis Koo, and um, so the ending is kind of leaving viewers with a lot of questions. Yeah, it's true. It's a bit weird. So I don't know what they did there. But the thing is, the film is so sloppy, and the thing is. It's not a surprise that that there would be so much sort of plot hole because, you know, a lot of these films, the people who watch these movies, they they watch it thousands of times, whatever, before it goes screen. There's a recent experience on the film I worked on. Um, uh, you realize that these people are watching the film day in, day out, every day for a couple of weeks or months, and and you know they sort of lose track of these sort of really logical issues when they when mm-hmm. they see the film so many times and. Um, and a lot of things are cut for time. Like there's a film I worked on, um, eight writers at eight writers. Um, and when I first translated the treatment, everything's there. You know, you know so many characters, and and it's all there. And each character is moment. You watch the final. St- you watch the final. I watch the final cut. Forty, fifty percent of the stuff got got cut out for time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you can only blame the post production process for not finding a smarter way to deal with it. But mm-hmm. yeah, th- this happens. Okay, we have another question from a friend of the show and also a co-host over on the podcast on Fire Dynasty Report, uh, Dr. David Lamb. Some of you may know him. Know him. He had a question on Line Walker with regard to Lewis's relationship with Nick. He felt that their relationship was actually, you know, that they were in a relationship together. Um, that was the sort of the sensibility he got from them. And after he said it, I had not really thought about it because I was like. I don't know. I mean, they kind of, it seemed like they were kind of flirting with their assistant at certain points, but then in retrospect, now thinking about it, could have been possible, right? Uh, that, that they were actually in a relationship together. Um, any thoughts on that, Kevin? No, I think it's just a heroic bloodshed um, uh, sort of genre homoeroticism. I, I, don't, I don't think anything of it other than that. Yeah. I wouldn't go as far as to say, yeah, they're probably gay. I think it's just very much um, the way it is in this genre is that the men are always a bit too close. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean they're gay or not. But yeah, the film obviously didn't have time to introduce love interests. But um, yeah, I don't think I wouldn't go far, go far enough to say they're probably gay or anything mm-hmm. like that. No. All right. If you would like to be part of the show, you can get in touch with us via the website at concast.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast, email eastscreen at gmail.com, and we are over on Facebook, East S, West S. We'd love to hear from you, and again, thanks to Peter and uh, David for their questions on Line Walker. Also urge you to follow Kevin and all the things that he's doing as he's moving and shaking and watching Aaron Kwok concerts. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? You can uh, read my stuff on Discovery Magazine uh, and on Silk Road Magazine uh, on your Cathay Pacific and Dragon Air Flights or Cathay Dragon. You can also download Discovery Magazine on your iPad and the iPad App Store. Um, and you can follow me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Um, and you can email me at thegoldenrock at gmail.com. All right, excellent. Next show, episode 206 should be. We're going to be talking about the last film I watched in Hong Kong. Uh, Fooling around in Jianghu with uh, Alan Tam and, uh, you know, some other locals. And, uh, yeah, uh, we've got a lot to say about that film. So all of that and more on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying... Will the real Godzilla please stand up? Please stand up. Please stand up. And we'll see you next time.
see you next time, everybody. Uh.